We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about our relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Well, welcome to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. And today I am so honored that a colleague and friend of mine, Brad Hambrick, has agreed to talk with us. And Brad serves as the pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. He also is an assistant professor of biblical counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he's also a council member of the Biblical Counseling Coalition and has authored several books, including God's Attributes, Rest for Life's Struggles, and his newest, Making Sense of Forgiveness, Moving from Hurt to Hope. Welcome, Brad. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, it is always a good to get a chance to get to talk with you. And so I uh, was excited to get the invitation. Yeah, one of the things Brad and I worked together on, he was the general editor for a video series and book that we did, uh, or he did actually uh, edited Becoming the Church That Cares Well for the Abused, the churchcares.com project. And he invited me as well as many others to participate in that in educating the church and leaders how they can better serve the abused population. And I think it was a great curriculum, Brad, and I wish every church would download it and use it. But my concern is, and one of the first questions I want to ask you as a member of a church, as involved with church leaders, as a male, as a, a person who's worked in a seminary, why do you think the church is making the same mistakes over and over again? Yeah, and we ask the question that way, uh, and it's as if there was one reason when there is uh, a whole multitude of reasons. Whenever we talk about reasons, I always try to caveat reasons aren't excuses. When you try to understand why uh, it can come across as explaining away, you know, there are, again, so many reasons. I will, I will focus on the side of the spectrum of the well-intended missing person. Uh, like there are people who miss because they have ill motive and they intend to deceive and they are covering something up. And uh, there we would just say it's the evil and deceitfulness of the heart. And um, Jesus warned of uh, wolves who would disguise themselves as sheep or wolves who would disguise themselves as shepherds. And uh, that should not catch us by surprise because from the very beginning of our faith, that's something that I mean, you can go into the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, where he is saying this is uh, time and again, the kind of thing that you have to look at because it will happen in the life of the church. But I think there's still a tendency amongst many uh, to think abuse is something that happens out there. You know, there's the naive idea of like, if there was an abuser around here, we would know it. There is pastors being in a position, kind of a public position of authority, I think there's a natural affinity to identify with the person who's been accused uh, more than the person who has been abused. You know, one of the points that we hit in the church cares curriculum is uh, that first question pastor or anybody asks uh, between how would I want this handled if I were the person accused? Versus how would I want this handled if this were my story and I was entrusting uh, my experience of abuse to somebody else? The way that even that first instinctual question gets asked, those are all things that can contribute. Some of those may influence some church leaders more than others. 
I know there are plenty of things I didn't mention. So if there's things that you say, hey, let's talk about this one, then by all means, bring it up. Well, I think there's two tracks that we can go on. Uh, you know, the, the sexual abuse track by a ministry leader, someone in the church disclosing um, and not being heard, not being believed, not being um, at least have the whole situation investigated by an outside expert. It's sort of dismissed, like automatically we believe the accused because he said it didn't happen. And we think about the, you know, the scandals recently with Hybels and Rabbi Zacharias. And, you know, these are honorably ministry leaders who we all look up to, who we want to believe, and yet lied, straight out lied to their questioners. And everybody believed them because we want to believe them. We would hate to believe that they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. So there's that one track of why is it so hard for us to hear the victim and believe her? Uh, and I think culturally we've got, we've got a phrase. I like the phrase. Uh, I'm not against the phrase. So if anybody hears, it's like, oh, does he not? No, I do. But in our culture, we frequently say innocent until proven guilty. And in the context of church and that kind of thing, then we apply that in a way that to the person sharing their story of abuse with us, even when we don't mean to, we can apply it in a way that means liar until proven truthful. Mm -hmm. We have to be willing to give the benefit of the doubt both ways. Uh, when you give one way benefit of the doubt, uh, like, ah, this person, they're up front, they preach, they teach, they open the Bible, I should give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, this person is here, they are vulnerable, we should give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's where having somebody outside uh, look at that is really important. Um, yeah, I think the other thing, or another thing, not the other thing that comes into play is we don't all, like when it comes to calling CPS, I think for many pastors, they still feel like calling CPS is the equivalent of pressing charges. Like, how am I going to press charges on somebody when I have no idea what happened? Well, no, when you call CPS, you're getting an expert second opinion. And uh, those are areas where there is ignorance or misinformation that it makes things seem much more plausible than they should be to the person who has the power to make those decisions. And yeah, I think that's another three or four things that contribute to why this gets handled the way that it does. And I think we have used the Bible sometimes or misused or misunderstood even where Paul talks about, you know, don't involve secular authorities in your trivial pursuits or trivial concerns or uh, financial concerns. But yet Romans 13 tells us that we ought to involve the governing authorities that God has put in place to protect us against evildoers. Um, and so there's this push-pull between do we call, do we not call, do we involve the police, do we call child protective services, what do we do as trying to honor God in the shepherding role of the church and yet still protect my congregation. Yeah, and I've heard that a fair amount uh, that, you know, what does it mean in Corinthians when Paul is saying like, ah, you shouldn't take one another to court? Uh, well, this is one of those areas where, I mean, there can be debates about how, how deeply the Christianness of influence on our nation exists, but we have two different types of court proceedings. Uh, there's criminal law and there's civil law. 
And if you look at it in context and you take that passage in Corinthians and you look at it as compared to the Romans 13 passage that you just mentioned, I think what Paul is saying in Corinthians is, man, over these petty things, uh, property lines and stuff like that, like you guys should be able to handle that. If you're taking those things to the courts and dragging one another publicly through the mud, you are you're disgracing the name of Christ publicly. You shouldn't do that. But First Corinthians or Romans 13, uh, where he's like, ah, the, the government doesn't bear the sword for no reason. Uh, if something's moving from civil to criminal, he's saying, I gave the legal systems jurisdiction over that. And the most biblical thing that you can do is allow the criminal system to deal with criminal matters. It's not graceful. It's not forgiving to omit allowing the Romans 13 jurisdiction that God prescribed not to do its job. And so, uh, yeah, I think there are at times legitimate confusion over how does the passage in Corinthians and Romans 13 get along. And then sometimes there's just convenient confusion. I'm going to put the emphasis over here because it just makes things a little easier uh, on behalf of the church. And that's another question I would want to ask you on behalf of the church. From my experience working in this field, it seems like oftentimes the institution gets a higher prioritization, whether it's the institution of the church, the denominational institution, or even the institution of marriage when there's marital abuse. Like holding that sacred becomes the penultimate of what's most important now versus the safety and care of the victim. And what biblical grounds might they have to do that? Because it seems so contrary to what the Bible says, if we're to represent Christ as a church to the world, Christ always cared for the oppressed. God always is on the side of the downtrodden, the oppressed, and always against the oppressors. So how does the church biblically defend protecting the institution over the individual? Short answer, we don't. Like if you flip through your Bible, you get this real sense that God did not feel any need to protect the reputation of his leaders when they got out of line. Like it is embarrassing to see the types of choices that were made by the people that you know, they're Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith people that messed up royally in ways that God would say, if I'm going to have my full redemptive agenda, I don't hide that because I'm a God of truth. I'm not a God of shadows. It is one of those things that, um, you know, often when something abuse related happens within the context of a church, especially if it's by a leader. The first phone call is to an attorney or to an insurance office. And uh, I'll come back to that in just a moment, but a, a side comment there, the church project, church cares project that you and I worked on together. Um, one of the things in uh, putting together that team was I wanted that team to be a representative sample of the kind of people in, the, in their community that pastors need to know so that there are other phone calls to be made. 
And we had an attorney on our team like that is a needed and good voice in the process. You need to understand that it's not the only voice. But when you call an insurance provider, you call an attorney, um, they view the whoever they're talking to is the client. Uh, and they they begin to advise the most protective things uh, for that client, in this case, the church. I think a lot of us, when we talk to a doctor, when we talk to an attorney, when we talk to somebody who's got that level of advanced education, we shut our brains off. We stop thinking and we don't recognize, we think this person is telling us what has to be done versus they're saying from their sphere of influence, which what attorneys want to do is limit liability. Uh, and that's, that is a consideration. There it goes on the pantheon of considerations should be lower than it's often given. But the person receiving advice still has to filter that through their other values. But uh, again, when that's the first phone call and that becomes the expert who tells us what to do, that deferential posture is, is not a biblical rationale, but it is often the process that leads us to that point. I totally agree with you. And I'm going to piggyback on that thought with women who go to their pastor for counsel who have been perhaps in a domestically abusive relationship or a emotionally destructive marriage, and they're seeking help and they're seeking wisdom. And perhaps again, just like the attorney's main objective is the safety of the institution financially, the pastor's main objective is saving the marriage and not the safety or sanity of the people in it, perhaps. And so when a woman receives advice that go home, pray harder, try harder, meet his needs, respect him more, suffer for Jesus, all those kind of typical Christian words that women in destructive marriages hear ad nauseum for their pastor, I would say, and I think you would agree with me that he is the expert supposedly in the scriptures, but don't put your brains on the shelf. <laughs> think mm -hmm. for yourself and understand that he may have certain biases due to his own value system of protecting the marriage and the church from the scandal of divorce or abuse allegations. And you have very different priorities of protecting your life or your emotional health or your children's health um, and mental health. And that may not be in alignment with where he's going. Right. And, you know, you and I, have, we've talked about this several times in the past where, um, you know, one, I, I wear, or there's two sides of my job description. Uh, it's pastor of counseling. Uh, and sometimes that can feel a little bit like a duck bill platypus of how do those, how does those go together? Um, I, I am more of a counselor who pastors than I am a pastor who counsels. You know, if we're saying which syllabus did we place the emphasis upon, I'm more a, a counselor who pastors. But being in that setting uh, where I've done this, not just in a local church, but other settings, you're frequently consulting with a variety of people around the same situation. Uh, and so you may have a social worker, you may have a psychiatrist, you may have a medical doctor. Uh, uh, if it's divorce proceedings, you've got attorneys and from both sides. And uh, you can have lots of experts who are part of the conversation. And the experts don't agree. You know, we would like to think like if you get enough experts in the room, they're going to come and they're going to say, this is what 
This is what has to happen. But every expert comes to the question from the vantage point of whatever it is that they do. And their expertise is both an asset and it's a strongly biasing factor. And so, you know, that's one where anytime you're consulting with anyone who is an expert in anything, value their input, but don't be mindless. Try to figure out what question they're answering about your situation and make sure that it's the question that you're actually asking uh, because their expertise may cause them to reframe the question in a way that you go, wait, that, that may or may not be legitimate, but it's not, regardless, it's not the question I was asking. And when you're in an abuse context, the degree to which the battle over what the question is and how it gets framed and speaking up in those situations, it, there is a weight to that, that even though that's the appropriate thing to do, I don't want to downplay how hard that is in general and how particularly hard that is when somebody's coming out of an abusive situation. Yeah. And I think if we unpack that a little further, you know, I think that perhaps, and I might be stereotyping or generalizing here, but because women have been taught that a godly woman submits to those in authority over her, her husband, her pastor, learning to think for herself, learning to evaluate, learning to not be a people pleaser and submit and say, I don't think that's the best advice for me, whether she says that out loud or she just knows that in her heart. That is a struggle for so many Christian women who truly want to honor God because they almost hear their pastor's voice as the voice of God telling them, what is their next right step? What's most important now? And what he sees as most important, saving the marriage, may not be the most important for her. A version of complementarianism that exists that, that when it's present in a church can be a very dominant ethos of the church, can very much contribute to, I should defer. And I think it's very fair to say churches where you might say that strong or bold complementarian perspective is a major value in the church. I think it is especially difficult to navigate matters of abuse because it, you know, the dynamic that you're talking about, it does exist. Yeah. And I've experienced, Brad, and I'm sure you have too, maybe not in the church you attend, but when women don't do what their Christian counselor or pastor recommends. Maybe they don't let him back home. They don't reconcile, even though they may have forgiven, they still don't trust the man to come back home or they do file for divorce or they do separate. Oftentimes what happens is the whole thing gets reversed because the husband looks like the victim of her hard heartedness, her unforgiveness, her unwillingness, her stubborn, you know, character, and she becomes the villain in the church, and he becomes the victim, and all kinds of support rallies around him for care and love, and she, I've had a woman actually get excommunicated from her church because she would not return home after an abusive incident. Yeah, um, 
And I know situations like that, and they, they're somewhere between heartbreaking and infuriating. When I'm talking with, again, depending on church polity, what the name of the, the office is, but like a board of elders or pastors, if it's not clear to everybody in the room, it's not something that the elders need to be saying, this is what you need to do to be a member of good standing in the church. That that point where those leaders look at one another and go, man, this feels hard. Are we doing the thing right here? At that point, they may or may not have their personal convictions. If they were in that individual's shoes, they could legitimately choose either option in the same way that if you take the two sides of the equation, uh, if somebody in a church circle says, you must stay, or somebody in an advocacy circle says, you must go, it It's usurping the voice and agency of that person. And so if over here, because this is my sphere, when when I'm advising and somebody says like, well, what do we do? This feels messy. Don't, Don't make it an edict. That at that point where you have that check, you need to be in a supportive position. You need to be asking for the type of cooperation from the destructive individual that would make an unsafe environment safe. And if in supporting the unsafe individual, this person bows on you, that told you something. Uh, If they are starting to become coercive and triangulating, undermining your character and things like that in the context of the church, because you wanted an unsafe position or unsafe context to be safe, you're getting a small taste of what this uh, spouse who's come to you uh, has been experiencing. Because uh, that's public, and things in public are usually going to be much tamer than those things that have the buffer of privacy. Uh, and so, yeah, I, for every person listening to this, that that is their story and experience. I'm, I can't say it for the ministry context that you've been in, but as somebody in ministry, I can say I'm sorry mm-hmm. that that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about your work, Brad, is that you are very nuanced on things um, because sometimes abuse isn't outwardly aggressive or violent. It's much more coercive and manipulative and gaslighting. And I think in our culture today, all of us have gotten a good lesson in what gaslighting looks like, right? We're just listening to the news, um, creating a different narrative that doesn't really exist on both sides. But you wrote a really great little pamphlet that I've always loved. It's called The Self-Centered Spouse. Describe a little bit about the challenge for a woman who's living with a self-centered spouse to understand some of the abusive elements, because sometimes they say the right words when they're caught or when they're cornered, but the heart hasn't changed. It's still entitled, it's still demanding. Help us to unpack that a little bit. And also what does a woman do or even a ministry leader do when he sees that some of these nonviolent but still controlling behaviors exercise? What, what are some of the red flags and what are some of the remedies that someone can do when they see that? 
Yeah, I'll walk into that question just a little bit, because whenever you ask an author about their book, they talk too long, uh, and I'll probably be guilty as charged there. Um, but when it comes to the subject of abuse, like it's one of those areas that, especially if it's non-criminal abuse, like if it's not call the police because charges need to be pressed, but it's somewhere between like normal garden variety selfishness. We're all sinners. We're all selfish, you know, sin, kind of that self-interest emanation point and something that's Romans 13 worthy. The church doesn't really have a basket for that. And so if we're sorting laundry and there's two piles and we've got something that needs to go in a third pile, we're out of luck. And so a big part of this booklet was just like, hey, can we create the category uh, in such a way that it really does show up in Scripture? Uh, and so a base passage for this is Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Uh, most pastors, when they think conflict, they think 1 through 5. Uh, so you got Sermon on the Mount. Verses one and two, very well-known passage, like judge not lest you be judged. The measure you use is going to be measured against you. And it's like, okay, we, when things go wrong, uh, it is sometimes maybe even often virtuous uh, to overlook an offense. Uh, Proverbs 19 to 1911, uh, it's two man's glory to overlook an offense. But then Jesus is building a progression. So then you hit verses three through five, because there's some things, if you overlook them, they just keep happening. They need to be addressed. And he says, well, take the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. Uh, and the size is about the degree of control you have over the thing. So the log is like, oh, I got a lot of control on that. I can really get my hands around it. A speck, I don't have much control. I can't really get to that very well. Uh, but, you know, just in walking through the passage, let's pay attention. Three through five did not contradict one and two. Judge not lest you be judged was not contradicted by take the log out of your eye. It's different. It's addressing a higher level, more repetitive, greater consequence concern, but it didn't contradict. Then you hit verse six, where Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before swine uh, and don't feed wild dogs lest they turn and devour you. It is using two metaphors there dog, uh, which again, early Jerusalem, there would have been undomesticated dogs all over the place. If I see a dog and it's like ribs hungry, I want to offer it food. If you've got a wild dog, it doesn't know where the sandwich ends and the hand begins. It's going to devour you. If as you're being gracious, you get that kind of counter-aggressive response, Jesus says, don't keep doing that. You know, the pig just kind of wallers on whatever you give it. Uh, and so if you're gracious and it's just dismissive, take it advantage of it. I mean, things like common uh, happens with addiction and that kind of thing where you're trying to be nice and your niceness just gets absorbed and taken advantage of in the midst of what's going on. Jesus says, don't keep doing that either. And this isn't some modern like, ah, this became a thing in like 2015 and now they're rereading the Bible. If you go old school Matthew Henry 1700s, he looks at verse six, says it is the continuation of one through five. And he's saying, if you're in these kind of chronically destructive situations, you don't have to keep doing that. I mean, we've mentioned Romans 13. The end of Romans 12 is another one of those that it looks at. And it talks about how nice you're supposed to be when somebody's not nice to you and you go out of your way to do it. And I think Paul is giving 
really good intrapersonal guidance that if you're in a bad situation, counter aggressives make a combustible situation more flammable. But the only yeah. pause between Romans 12 and Romans 13 is a dip of the quill. And he's like, but if you need a restraining order, get it. And so just to have that category of, oh, the Bible does this a lot. It doesn't treat all conflict as if it's the same. It, even when it's emanating from an equally sinful heart, uh, it's not like somebody who's abusive needs a double shot of Jesus. But the consequences of their actions are greater so that the protocol of the response requires more caveats for safety, more like let's make sure that this is a safe situation before we place the more vulnerable person back in that situation. And so a big part of what that would be is just for somebody in the, in the language of a pastor and the language of a church go, this is what I feel like is going on in my life. It, I'm not in a Matthew 7, 3 through 5 situation. I'm in a Matthew 7, 6 in a way that sometimes when it, it shouldn't have to be this way, but for those who really, really want to honor the Bible, if there's not a reference like, this is what I'm saying, then that voice gets dismissed. And per what we were saying a moment ago, especially so if the person coming forward is a female. Yeah, and I love that. And one of the things that we find in our um, organization and conquer in our support group for women in destructive marriages, this cast your pearls before swine has become very meaningful for them because two things that they tend to do where they get trampled over and over and over again is they share their feelings. This really hurt me. This really made me feel bad. You know, it, it really makes me sad that you do this or whatever. And it's just turned on them like, oh, what's wrong with you? And you're too sensitive and you're just being ridiculous. And However, it comes at you, it's shaming and it's degrading and it's diminishing. And so sharing your emotions is one thing that you have to just realize it's not safe to do that. And it's not required when someone treats you that way. And the other thing is that, you know, especially with the biblical counseling orientation of confessing your sins, it's always, well, you know, what are you guilty of and make a list of your sins and what are your sins and confess your sins. And we have found that women have confessed, you know, I'm sorry, I was short-tempered or I'm sorry, I didn't respect you in that moment because, you know, I was angry and it becomes the narrative of the problem in their marriage. And so confessing a sin or confessing a fault, or even confessing like, Hey, I was sexually abused as a child that becomes the lightning rod for all of her discontent. And that's why you're upset. It's not because I'm a lousy husband or I've been abusing you. It's because you were abused as a child or because you didn't have a good family of origin or because, you know, whatever it is. And so that vulnerability and safety and sharing in marriage, some of our most tender moments, both our personal emotions or our sinful stuff becomes a lightning rod for attack, accusation, and further abuse. And so I think Jesus was so kind in saying, you don't have to do that, especially if someone turns on you and uses it aggressively and uses your pearls and cast them back at you as weapons. Right. And again, just a, a parallel example, echoing what you're saying. Uh, if somebody's in a car accident and the person who hit them was a drunk driver, and under cross-examination, uh, the attorney says, well, what could you have done different as a driver? 
well, I guess back in driver's ed, I was told to be a defensive driver. I'm not sure I was a, a defensive enough driver in that moment paying attention. Well, the threshold of what happened, I got hit by a drunk driver. Uh, yes, maybe I could have been more on guard. That doesn't account for what happened. And so there is the nature of the offense gives us some gauge for the proportionality of the kind of thing that we're asking for. And uh, that's one where, yeah, I, I have seen, I have heard what you're describing there. And it's, it is sometimes, not always, sometimes done in the name of biblical faithfulness, but it can be done sincerely, but in a misguided way where that, yeah, we've hit a threshold or we're, we're now using a different scale to weigh what's going on. Yeah. So how would, let's say there's not any outward demandingness, aggressiveness, those kind of things, but going back to the elements of the heart, you know, when Paul talks about this in Ephesians, I think he says, thieves stop stealing, you know, so that's a behavioral change. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, and start to work, get to work so that you can give. So thieves in their hearts are takers or selfish. They don't care about the other person. They just want what they want. And the change from a selfish heart to a unselfish heart is a giving heart is, is a process of stopping the selfishness for sure, but there's a change of heart that's entailed. And so how do you discern whether that heart change has taken place in the innermost person from a self-centered selfish heart, which might have been entitled, demanding, I want my way, you need to do it my way, I'm the head of this house, to a selfish heart that is still operating, but may not be as obvious. Yeah, I think Ephesians 4 gives us a really good paradigm. Like, like you were saying, ah, well, thieves, they are taking. Uh, it doesn't just say don't take, it says be generous, uh, work in a way to allow you to do that. If we're asking what kind of things are going on in the heart of a abusive individual, one of them's pride. Uh, another is impatience. Those aren't everything that's going on, but uh, we'll take those two. Well, the opposite of pride is humility. And when we're humble, we ask good questions. We really want to understand. It, it's not primarily about us being right, us being understood, uh, having our way. We, hey, when I did that, how did it impact you? And then not, well, that wasn't what I was trying to do. Uh, you just need to understand, but okay. It, there's a, you know, when we're humble, we ask questions, we want to listen. Uh, you know, opposite of patience um, or opposite of impatient is patience. Yet, we're not putting a timetable where, okay, it's been three weeks. Uh, well, oftentimes when somebody's in that mean version of it's been three weeks, those haven't been a real nice three weeks. Uh, those haven't been an emotional net win three weeks. You know, those three weeks have been pressuring and guilting. And, and so, yes, while it may have been three weeks that they have been outside the house, it hasn't been three weeks of peace and goodwill and patience and humility. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things where 
uh, if leaders are looking at the situation, can they hear? Are they eager to hear? Are they wanting to learn? Are they, are they the ones holding the stopwatch saying, this is how long it's been. Tell me how, ba- tell me how long I've got to wait. You know, those are things where they're trying to take control of the situation back. And a leader needs to be able to look at them and go, you're not cooperating. Okay, you're not breaking and entering. This is not where, like, we need to call the police because you're stalking. I mean, sometimes that happens. I'm not saying it does. But in this little vignette I'm making up in my head, it's just like, but you're also not cooperating. And this is the kind of thing that if you call this being good and you want points for this, you need to understand you're still operating in a relational deficit. You're still being relationally destructive. Yeah. I I think we use the term in our culture, it's still all about you. And it might not be all about you. I'm demanding my way in an aggressive way, but it's about me. Like my feelings should matter more than your feelings. So you don't feel safe, but I'm lonely and I want to come home. Why can't I come home? Or you're feeling still uncertain about whether you want to reconcile, but you're being an ungodly wife and you're not being submissive. And don't you want our family and you're breaking up the family. And so it's that that still it's all about me and my feelings and you need to care about my feelings more than I should have to care about your feelings or the impact that I've caused you or the damage that I've done. You should be over that by now. And so that pressure to make me feel better. I don't, I'm not happy separated or I feel, I feel guilty if we have to keep talking about this all the time, or I feel shame that you keep bringing this up all the time. So it's still about my feelings and it's not about your feelings and your needs. That's a real red flag for, for our population of just seeing that the selfish heart is still very much operating, even though it looks like he's working toward reconciliation, it's for his comfort, not because he's truly repentant. Yeah. And again, that's where timetables on these things are really hard. Because sometimes somebody really can be repentant and what they did was hurtful enough that we just don't feel safe yet. Other times we don't feel safe because they're actively pressuring, uh, even when they're not actively berating. And, um, you know, this is where having people involved in the process who, who this isn't the first time they've walked with a couple going through this kind of crisis. You know, if I'm talking to the church leader side here, is a counselor involved who's worked with abused spouses? Does the, is there a counselor involved who has a background in trauma and its impact that they can be more of a neutral voice on the subject of, hey, this, this isn't this person being delicate. This is the kind of impact these experiences have And however delicate this person may or may not be, what they're displaying right now is common. That that kind of voice, being able to talk with and advise leaders of the church who are trying to go, how do we provide good pastoral care? I mean, if both of these people are members of the church, we have responsibilities towards both. Uh, And so how do we do that? Having those other people involved, again, going back to church cares, that's why we had a variety of people there. These are, these are the representative kind of folks that, that you're going to need to hear from if we're going to do a good job on these things. Yeah, for sure. Wow, this has been great, Brad, and I really, really appreciate your time. Is there any closing words that you'd like to give our audience, whether there's 
Christian counselors who are listening, pastors who are listening, or just victims or perpetrators who are listening to our podcast about relationship truth. My, my final word would be, and I'll leave you with the final word. My final word would be, you cannot rebuild a relationship of any kind, but especially marriage without the foundations of safety and trust. And when those have been broken, they have to be repaired and asking a woman to reconcile or a man who's been abused, but asking for reconciliation without rebuilding safety and trust is asking her to lie and pretend. And it's asking her to do something totally against what her biology can do. You cannot be intimate in a loving way with someone you don't feel safe with or you don't trust. And that is why God has protected marriage and the sexual relationship with the mandate of marriage, because marriage is supposed to represent safety and trust. I love in Proverbs 31, where it says, she enriches his life as a good wife, and he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. And it goes both ways. She trusts him to enrich her life, not abuse her life, and do her good, not harm all the days of her life. Brad? Yeah. Uh, and I'll just echo and stem off of that, uh, the priority of safety, uh, that uh, where safety is absent, there's not going to be anything constructive. And when, you know, if we think of damage safety like any other injury, uh, if I have a major ankle injury, there's a time period where I'm going to put less weight on that. Uh, and that is, uh, that's part of the recovery process. And we get that with things like turned ankles. But yet we, uh, we rush it uh, with things like relationships. You know, one way that you tell, like, is this ankle ready for more weight? Uh, is you, you put a little weight on it and when it winces, that's the signal of like, hey, this, this isn't ready for that yet. Again, for pastors, for church leaders, have some folks uh, that you know that you can recommend to individuals that are going through this, that, uh, that they have experience in this area. Uh, again, they know abusive relationships, they know trauma, they know those impacts, uh, because these, these aren't going to be areas where we as pastors are experts. And so, you know, as pastors, we need to, we need to have the courage not to be experts about everything. I don't know, let me ask, is some of the uh, most theologically informed statements that we can make uh, oftentimes. And this is one of those areas where uh, having good people is really, really important. Absolutely, absolutely. And I just want to encourage the pastors who've reached out to me. I'm sure they've reached out to you and to other colleagues for some advice. Kudos to you because we don't know what we don't know. And we definitely don't know everything. And that's plain old humility of recognizing our limitations and reaching out to the body of Christ who might have more experience or more expertise in an area before we give wisdom. We would not give medical advice if we're not a doctor. And we wouldn't give specific medical advice if we don't have that specialty. And so please, we, we may know scripture, but we may, we may not know the application of the scripture in all of the nuances in these particular situations. Brad, thank you so much. Would you close us in prayer? I'd love to. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are a good shepherd, uh, that you promise to walk with us faithfully through places like a valley of the shadow of death. 
that you can walk with us in those places because of your power, your majesty, your care. And so I pray for those uh, who are hurting, uh, who are that wounded sheep in an unsafe place, that they would uh, they, they would know your presence, that they would know your care, that they would reach out to people who represented you well. Pray for those who are shepherds to learn to be a good under-shepherd, that hearing some of your character, hearing the types of things that you went out of your way uh, to make clear uh, in the Bible, that, uh, that they would see that. Lord, grant us all humility to acknowledge that there's a lot that we don't know in important situations, uh, and that we'd have the courage to own that in the moments when it's relevant. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Take care and God bless. Well, that's all for this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Thank you so much for listening. Go to leslievernick.com for more resources. If this show was helpful, please subscribe and share, and we would love your honest rating and review. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with Him, with yourself, and with others.